When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to an episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Liz Barrett, and I'm very happy today to be interviewing Angela Tedesco about her book, Finding Turtle Farm, My 20-Acre Adventure in Community-Supported Agriculture, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2022. Angela, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Elizabeth, for inviting me. I'm so happy you're here. So Angela has been surrounded by gardens almost her entire life. After earning a master's degree in horticulture from Iowa State University in 1995, she started a community-supported agriculture farm near Granger, Iowa. At Turtle Farm, she planted the seeds of a quiet revolution. Seeing how far American agriculture had strayed from its roots, she wanted her farm to raise food that served the earth as well as her community. Turtle Farm was one of the first of its kind in the upper Midwest, and Angela has been involved in grassroots efforts to support small local farmers as well. This includes being a founding member of the Iowa Network for Community Supported Agriculture and by serving on the Board of Practical Farmers of Iowa. Wow, that's a lot, Angela. (laughs) I applaud you. So, um, First, before we get into the book, can you tell us about CSA Farming? CSA Farming stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And when I first learned about this, I was in graduate school and I would run away to some organic conferences or order their uh, recordings so I could learn about or more about organic farming than what the University of Iowa State University was providing. I learned about this wonderful concept that was based on cooperation rather than competition, where the community supported the farmer, the farmer supported the community, and in general, most CSA farmers work to support the earth community as well, that three-sided triangle, farmers, consumers, and the earth. I especially like that it was supported because the customers would sign up for the seasons, so I knew how much food to grow. They would pay up front, so I didn't have to get loans to cover early expenses. They uh, would receive some of the freshest produce available. They could come visit the farm. And then together, we both knew how we were growing the food. It was very transparent, and they could come out and visit the farm and see the wonderful earth and soil and insects and flowers and everything that was growing at the farm. That's beautiful. I really love the triangle um, shape sort of metaphor for how you how you viewed the the earth supporting the people and the people supporting the community and the community 
then supporting the earth as well. It's really fantastic. Um, so as I told you before, I'm also a CSA farmer. However, we're only in our second season. So when I say I appreciate all the hard work that you've done that it took to build your community and build your soil, I really mean it. Um, 17 years is no mean feat. Um, so before we get into the main part of your book, uh, I want to go to the back where you have um, your recipes and your list of month to month produce that would be in the boxes. It's a beautiful September day here in Pennsylvania. Can you tell me what it's like in Iowa and tell me what you'd be pulling out of your garden, please? Well, it's a beautiful fall day here in Iowa, too. We had a frost advisory last night, but we didn't get frost right here where I am. So things like that always affect what's going to go into the box each week. My season was a 20-week season, and it generally ended the end of September or the first week of October. And that's just about the time that we would get a frost. So you're going to lose all those summer crops. But this week, we would still be getting some of those summer um, hot weather crops like tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and even maybe some okra and basil would still be alive. So we would still be providing some of those. But we'd also be starting to get some of the fall crops. We would be digging sweet potatoes to get those out of the ground before we've had a hard freeze. So they'd be getting their first sweet potatoes. We might be finishing up giving out our garlic, our onions, our potatoes, things like that. First of the winter squash would be ready. So they might be getting a butternut or some sweet dumpling squash, maybe even a pumpkin. Um, and other fall crops that might be starting would be things like spinach or beets or fall lettuces, probably some leeks and things like that. So it's a transition time. So the boxes can be very full in September until you get to the October share, which we did as an add-on for another month. We did an October share. But for the first number of years, I only did through September. So you would cram everything that was left in those September boxes. <laughs> That's right. And um, and in your book, you talk about how you also put in a newsletter. Can you tell yeah. me what you would what you would uh, write in your in your newsletters? Sure. Every week in their box, they would get a newsletter. I would tell them what was in their box because sometimes they did not recognize things like kohlrabi or uh, a lemon cucumber that is round and yellow and prickly. And they might email me and say, what is the strange things in my box? So they would have a list and sometimes they still couldn't discover what was in their box. I would tell them about what was going on at the farm, stories or happenings or events and I would give them recipes so they would know how to fix that okra or beets or something that they might not eat on a regular basis. Because they didn't want them to feel like they were wasting their money and wasting food. And uh, they were on this adventure with me. And so apparently they were willing to be adventurous with their food, eat with the seasons and try new things. So I tried to help them out in that regard. Wow, that's amazing. So can you tell me how you got started with Turtle Farm. Your book covers some details from the first year of growing, but also that you had children and, and you were a graduate student. Um, as you know, I also have children and I'm, in, and I'm in grad school. So how did you manage this work and, and this transition successfully? I mean, for 17 years, please tell me your secret. My secret was doing one thing at a time. I did not try to do... <laughs> 
children graduate working on the farm altogether. Unlike you, I wanted to make sure my children were pretty self-sufficient. They were in high school and about to start college when I went back to get my graduate degree. So, you know, they were pretty self-sufficient then and I could focus on my studies. Um, and then when I started the farm, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any other job. I didn't have children at home. So I could focus totally on, on the job. My husband had a, his own job work. He was a psychologist and had an income for our family. So I also didn't have some of those severe pressures that some farmers have about being able to make enough to live on. So I was privileged in that way to have that pressure off of me. So that's how we got started. And then, of course, I didn't have land. I had a three acre, we lived on a three acre acreage, but, you know, two thirds of it was in woods and driveway and there was not enough to farm for doing a CSA of the size I wanted to do. So we did the search process for land, which in Iowa is very hard to find small farms because so many of them are hundreds or thousands of acres big. And to find something halfway close to a metro area would make the price of the land, you know, be higher. So it was not an easy thing to find land. And that's an issue that a lot of beginning farmers have is finding affordable land to start their businesses. So I was lucky in that regard. Wow. So you transitioned from farming at home uh, with on on in your backyard, essentially. And then you made the leap immediately. Um, that's got to be a big with some growing pains. Can you tell me about any any things that went awry that maybe you didn't share in the book or <laughs> something, <Yeah>. anything? <laughs> I thought I shared some bad times in the book, but um, oh, there's always things to pivot around. We've got this new word since the pandemic called pivot. Back then, we didn't know that's what we were doing. Um, I think the hardest part was uh, I was not skilled in mechanization. So I had to find people who would come in and like till up the soil for me, do that kind of work. And then, you know, I mainly had the hand tools, wheel hose and things, which are wonderful tools, but to do them on an acre or two or three or four or five um, is not very practical. So that was a big leap for me. I was probably the only sibling in my family that did not learn how to drive a tractor growing up. I was sandwiched between two boys who did, and I didn't have to. So I thought that was fine. I didn't know I was missing out on anything until I got my own farm. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, all right. Um, and it's funny that I'm the only one who farms. So there you go. Um, so um, other things. Oh, I noticed, you know, going from a backyard garden to the wide open fields, you know, out next to other farms and things, the, the insects had a lot more pressure out there. Mm. You know, things I never had trouble with my backyard garden out there was like, oh, wow, look at all these cucumber beetles or all these bean beetles. Where do they come from? Well, hello, there's a soybean field over there. No wonder they like to be out here. So things like that, they were different. And so you just adjusted. Uh, deer were a problem there, but they were a problem at my house too. So I was aware of that a little bit. I didn't wear how extensive a problem it was until once I went up to harvest lettuce for the uh, CSA boxes and found that the hearts had been eaten out of all the lettuces by deer overnight. And you didn't even notice it until you went to harvest them. I was like, okay, scratch that off today's list. So, you know, Little things like that. You just keep going. 
That's why you have like 30 plus crops. You know, if one thing is missing, the customers don't necessarily notice it unless it's their favorite strawberries or tomatoes or asparagus. So anyway, there's always issues. Deer are absolutely ravenous. Um, it's it's funny. My relationship to deer has changed tremendously since um, becoming a, a farmer. And um, I see them on the street and, I, and I'm still like, oh, they're really cute, but stay away. um right so in your second chapter you talk about the origins of turtle farm um you write about the search for land the building of the soil and structures but um i need to ask a very important question why did you name it turtle farm yeah i thought that was in the book but it wasn't i i was a little late in my life deciding to do this. I was in my mid-40s when I started, so I could be considered a little bit slow. I had the shell in the back of my pickup driving, uh, you know, whether we owned the land or the first few years I was on rental ground, so I was carrying lots of things under that shell in the back of my pickup. But the third and main reason one I'm most honored to use is that the turtle is, has been an a symbol of the earth and a number of indigenous uh, cultures. So I like that alliteration. And it was easy to remember. The only problem I had was that the little kids would come and want to see the turtles. <laughs> so I, I finally got a, a strong sculpture of a turtle so I could show them the turtle. Uh, we didn't have turtles on the farm particularly. So Oh, that's very sweet. I did wonder because um, there are, there is at least a, a reference to Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which is just a phenomenal book. And this reminded me, your writing reminded me of hers, which oh. I, I don't know if I can give a bigger compliment to. Uh, you can't. You can't. That's the biggest compliment <laughs> I've gotten yet. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to kind of bring this in because um, I'm, an, I'm also, as I said, a graduate student and I'm studying history. And right now I'm doing a module on um, Native Americans. And one of the largest things that I've learned that I didn't realize growing up was just how involved women were in uh, Native American agriculture. I mean, they, they basically did everything. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of parody in what you did growing your community supported agriculture, naming it Turtle Farm. And I had to ask. So thank you for sharing. That's really wonderful. Sure. Yes. And a shame that you didn't also grow turtles. I mean, <laughs> we can't do everything though. <laughs> we didn't do any uh, animal products at the farm because I did not live on the farm. So it was a little hard to handle the wildlife or the tame life. So, yeah. Of course, of course. So you also have a chapter called Food is Sacred in which you discuss how so many people are disconnected from their food. Um, can you also talk about giving educational talks and tours? I'm wondering if you can tell me, do you see farming and food education as sacred as well? Well, sure. It's all, I think it's all related. Um, finding the sacred in food is an education for people to take a moment to um, be conscious of the decisions you're making. Think about what your part has been and bringing this food to you that you're going to take into your body. 
mean, hopefully it's not a mindless act that you just grab whatever you can without thought to what's in that food. You know, what did you eat this morning? Do you even remember? And was it of consequence to you? How, where did you get it from? How was it grown? How is it going to affect your body? So all those things are important things to think about that maybe young people don't care about. They're so hungry. They just eat anything in sight. Maybe that's where your kids are. I don't know. But, um, and I didn't always do that. So, well, I kind of did because I always, I grew up on the farm and we produced most of our, of our own food, including animals. So I knew where most of that food was coming from. But, you know, the allure of getting Wonder Bread was something that we, when we were children, we thought, oh, Wonder Bread, it's so soft and yummy. Little did I know how little nutrition was in that. So I, I've become a bit of a, a foodie in, in the sense of what's uh, good for our health and that consciousness and awareness of the sacred and food um, brings that to our bodies, I think, when we consume that food. That's fantastic. And that really points to our knowledge of food and the change over time. Um, another thing as far as changing over time that I'd like to ask you, um, you began your farm in the 90s. Um, how did you build community then? And how might that differ from how you would do it now? Well, between then and now, the social media has exploded. I mean, I didn't even have a smartphone when I started. I barely had a cell phone, a big blocky thing that I carried in my pocket, barely. So that whole aspect of, you know, internet and all that has vastly changed how I think farms and marketing and communication all happen now. My communications were through the newsletters, which, you know, I went to the print shop and printed them off and hand carried them and handed them out in the boxes. Otherwise, I didn't have a way to send them to my customers because many of them didn't have emails at that point or not all of them did. So I even... I even had some that never had email to the end. So I always had to do a few paper copies for those customers. So that's probably the, the biggest change. I think the CSAs that are starting now, like yours and the ones I see around here, they have the benefit of seeing what's worked and hasn't worked. As CSAs have grown and become more numerous, you know, there's more choices for people to have. Maybe you aren't having to educate people as much about what a CSA actually is. I mean, they never heard of it when we started. I hadn't heard of it when we started. And now it's a little bit more common. I think some people still need to be educated about it. But So you have some advantages now from seeing what worked well for us and what didn't and what might work well for you. I think CSAs now are a little more customized to help the consumer and maybe help the farmer as well. So they're not growing things that people don't want. So things like that, I think have changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the O word. Um, or <laughs> organic certification is a big hurdle. We just actually finished ours this past summer. Why? I know why it was important to us, but I'm wondering you talk about this in the book, but can you just elaborate a little more why it was so important to your farm? Is it is it really just a matter of showing your customers that they can trust your growing methods? It's not just that because with a CSA, when you're communicating with those customers and you have that relationship, you don't necessarily need to be certified organic. 
because you have that conversation. They can come to the farm and see what you're doing and check it out themselves and all that. I decided to get certified for perhaps new people to find me that were looking for organic produce and didn't know about me. They might look at, um, you know, there were, there were um, listings of organic farms, there were listings of CSAs, and I wanted to be in all those areas to communicate because, like I said, back then there wasn't the social media there is now. So I chose to be certified and spend that extra money to do that for that reason, for people to find me. Uh, organic certification is, to me, a baseline of where you want to be in growing. And I think there's even now a certification of beyond organic because a lot of people are not uh, satisfied with the current guidelines as being too lenient or they're, you know, the... The certifiers that come and inspect the farms maybe are not catching everything. So I think there's more built on trust than just the getting certified, but I also think it has its place and its value. Absolutely. So now you talk about some adversity, right? We already went over some of that, but you also talk about um, bugs and snakes and spiders on the farm and people's reaction to them, but also the importance of those creatures in a healthy farm ecosystem. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that too? Sure. I feel like that's one of my main goals in educating people about the natural environment is how beneficial most of these insects are. I mean, if you have a, a ladybug that eats a aphid was that aphid a pest or was it beneficial because it fed the men what we think of as the ladybug or the beneficial insects so so the whole um premise of pest versus a beneficial insect is a human-made um, distinction that doesn't necessarily apply if you really think about it the important thing is that things are in balance that you don't have too many in one thing because maybe you've gone out and sprayed for bugs and you've killed all the bugs well, guess which ones come back first? The ones whose food source is there. So if you have a crop of something that a pest, you call a pest, has been eating and you sprayed for it, well, if your crop is there, they're going to come back first. The beneficial insect that might eat or parasitize that pest um, won't come back until the pest is there. So you have to have a certain level of pest present to have a beneficial show up. You also need things like flowers because some pests parasitize, or excuse me, some beneficials parasitize the pest. I'm using these words just because they're helpful. <laughs> the <pest laughs> um, but they need uh, to eat nectar. The monarch butterflies that we so much love, we all know that their caterpillars grow on milkweed or of some sort. That's their favorite food source. But the, the butterflies themselves eat nectar, and so they need flower sources for their nectar across the season. So you don't want to just plant milkweed. You want to plant other things like, you know, everything from, you know, plant dandelions, but they would get nectar from dandelions to a lot of the herbs we plant. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, things in balance. And I think that goes back to your triangle, and that's sort of part of a, another... Right. A, another side of that um, triangle. So this is amazing. Um, I just wanted to add some of your words from the introduction. Uh, this need to grow things went 
beyond just an appreciation for the taste of good food that I grew up having. It was a very real need to ground me to connect with the spiritual dimension of life in the most profound way I could. I needed to nurture life in the soil, observe and learn from it and consume it directly. That's fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your journey and being such a tireless and generous contributor to the growth of community-based sustainable food systems. Thank you. Thank you. I can't seem to do without it. We we farmers sometimes refer to ourselves as why do we keep doing this? It's like we have an illness, but it's actually just a love, love for the, for the earth and for the soil and for growing things. It's wonderful. So for anyone else interested in this story of growing connections with people and the land through community supported agriculture, please pick up a copy of Finding Turtle Farm by Angela Tedesco. It's a fantastically nourishing story. Angela, many thanks from both me and the New Books Network. Uh, You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) 